Celebrities dress up for the Met Gala. Desperate Democrats seek a scandal, and Joe Biden dominates the polls. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Prepare for the meanest episode of The Ben Shapiro Show in history, which is saying a lot, because I have some comments on the Met Gala, like a lot of them. And they're actually, they have some depth. I don't want to oversell this thing. It's going to be good. But first, in quarter one, gold purchases by central banks were the highest in six years. In the face of the dollar's declining stature, what are you doing to protect your savings? Become your own central bank. Move some of your savings to gold. It helps you protect those savings. Can you afford another hit to your retirement like the last downturn when the S&P dropped 50%? One of the ways to hedge against inflation and uncertainty and instability is with precious metals. Gold is a safe haven against uncertainty. My savings plan is diversified and yours should be as well. The company I trust with precious metal purchases is Birch Gold Group. Right now, thanks to a little-known IRS tax law, you can even move your IRA or eligible 401k into an IRA backed by physical gold and silver, which is perfect for people who want to protect their hard-earned retirement savings from future geopolitical uncertainty. Look back historically. When the bottom falls out of everything else, gold tends to safeguard savings. I'm not saying that you should take all of your money and put it in gold. I'm saying take some of it, diversify. Birch Gold Group has thousands of satisfied customers, countless five-star reviews, and A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Contact Birch Gold Group. Get a free information kit on physical precious metals. See if diversifying into gold and silver makes sense for you. This comprehensive 16-page kit reveals how gold and silver can protect your savings, how you can legally move that IRA or 401k out of stocks and bonds into a precious metals IRA if that's something you're interested in. To get that no-cost, no-obligation kit, text BEN to 474747. Again, text BEN, my name, to 474747 for that free comprehensive kit. Go check it out right now. Text BEN to 474747. All righty. So last night was such an exciting evening in the arts, an incredibly exciting evening in the arts when everyone dresses up like a dope and goes over to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's amazing. The Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute has a fundraiser every year where basically they somehow get all these celebrities to dress like, like fools and show up and everybody oohs and ahs at the ridiculous and bizarre outfits that these celebrities wear. Nothing smacks more of the Hunger Games capital fashion than the Metropolitan Museum of Art Gala. And there's something deeply unsettling about the richest socialists among us spending presumably hundreds of thousands of dollars to create some of the ugliest crap ever put on a human face or body, and then strolling into a, strolling into a paparazzi-strewn room to show off these hideous outfits, all because they are so much better than you are. They're so much better than I, they're so much better than everyone. This is what taste is. Now, this year was particularly ridiculous because the theme, every year they have a theme at the Metropolitan Museum of Art Costume Institute, this year's theme was camp, Notes on Fashion, which is a play on writer Susan Sontag's seminal essay, Notes on Camp, which I'll get to in just a second. In 1964, according to NBC News, Sontag tried to make sense of the notoriously hard-to-define aesthetic in her bullet-pointed treatise by saying camp is the love of the unnatural, of artifice and exaggeration. Camp, she laid out, sees everything in quotation marks and is something of a private code, a badge of identity. Camp is often over-the-top, gaudy, extreme, and playful. If all of this makes you want to go full French Revolution and start executing the, the Aristos, well, you're not alone. This is the sort of stuff where you wonder about the culture gap in the United States. This would be it. And the reason that this would be it is because the very notion of camp was designed as a way for supposedly highbrow metropolitan people to sneer at the rest of America. That's what camp was originally. And it still feels that way. It's why a normal person looks at these costumes and thinks these people look like idiots. And yet everyone in the arts like, wow, that's just, it's just gorgeous. It's incredible. You feel like you're being gaslit. 
you feel like you're being gaslit because this stuff is not just hideous, it's stupid looking and it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And these same people are complaining about kids who are starving and healthcare that doesn't cover everyone while they stroll around in hundreds of thousands of dollars of outfits that aren't even pretty. Like this, this isn't even a fashion that anyone would ever wear, right? None of this stuff is fashion anybody would ever wear. All of this is just a playful sense of irony. Now, I am not a big fan of irony, of cynicism in, in politics, in art. I find it off-putting. Not only do I find it off-putting, I find it degrading. Because in your life, if you live your life in ironical fashion, if you live your life sneering at everyone who is trying to be sincere, you're going to make yourself pretty hated pretty quickly. Most people are trying to lead a sincere life. Most people are trying to lead an authentic life where they believe the things they believe and then live for those things. Most people are trying to better themselves. Most people are trying to increase their status in the world, play by the rules. What irony does, unfortunately, just as a psychological, a psychological trait, what irony tends to do is downgrade all of that. The more sincere you are, the easier it is to make fun of you. And this is why you will see those in the arts mocking honest art, mocking the stuff they think is too simple, too innocent. Instead, we have to sneer at it. Fred Siegel has a great book called The Revolt Against the Masses, How Liberalism Has Undermined the Middle Class. This book came out, I don't know, 15 years ago. And he talked in the book about the fact that during the 1950s, a period that the American left excoriates and hates, the American movement toward greater, greater culture was happening apace. So he talks about how in the 1950s, the public's expanding taste and increased income produced a 250% growth in the number of local symphony orchestras between 1940 and 1955. In 1955, 15 million people in the United States paid to attend Major League Baseball games. 35 million paid to attend classical music concerts. That's amazing. So more people, almost three times as many people, paid to attend classical music concerts as paid to attend a Major League Baseball game. The New York's Metropolitan Opera Saturday afternoon radio broadcast drew a listenership of 15 million out of an overall population of 165 million. So people were spending enormous time, enormous money trying to better themselves. Book sales doubled over the course of this period. NBC spent half a million dollars in 1956 to present a three-hour version of Richard III starring Laurence Olivier. This is precisely the same time, precisely the same time that so many people on the left were decrying America as a cookie-cutter, middle-brow country. In 1947, in 1947, there was a guy named Robert Hutchins. He was then president of the University of Chicago and an autodidact philosopher named Mortimer Adler. They launched an effort to bring the great books of Western civilization to the people. In 1948, Hutchins and Adler drew 2,500 people to a Chicago auditorium to hear them lead a discussion of the trial of Socrates. By 1951, there were 2,500 great books discussion groups with roughly 25,000 people meeting. 50,000 Americans a year were buying collections of the writings of Plato, Aristotle, the Founding Fathers, and Hegel at prices starting at 300 bucks and topping out at $1,200. And yet we were told by the American left that mass culture was eating America. And this is where camp comes in. The reason that I'm reviewing this is because Notes on Camp, which is, the, which is the inspiration for the Metropolitan event last night. Notes on Camp is an essay by Susan Sontag, the radical philosopher who once declared that white people were a cancer. And in 1964, in Partisan Review, which was basically a communist magazine, she wrote an essay titled Notes on Camp. The essay sent Susan Sontag's name profile into the stratosphere. But basically, her entire theory was that people who were highbrow had to basically mock people who were attempting to learn more, mock people who were attempting to aspire to something better culturally. 
She wanted, she, she said that camp was a rebuke to the cultural mandarins, to people who are trying to spread culture. She said it allowed people to be serious about the frivolous and frivolous about the serious. In other words, highbrow people could like lowbrow things so long as they were ironical about it. So long as they looked down at everybody who was attempting to better themselves. She said that there were new aristocrats of taste. She suggested that middlebrow middle brow living could be enjoyed, but only as long as you were mocking it. That's what camp really was. In her essay, Notes on Camp, she describes camp in sort of a bullet-pointed way. She says, camp is a certain mode of aestheticism. It is one way of seeing the world as an aesthetic phenomenon. That way, the way of camp, capital C, is not in terms of beauty, but in terms of degree of artifice, of stylization. Right? It's the elevation of stuff that you find beautiful. So if you find Beethoven beautiful, Beethoven is not camp. Making fun of Beethoven is camp. Taking it to the aesthetic extreme, that's what camp is. To emphasize style is to slight content or to introduce an attitude which is neutral with respect to content. It goes without saying that the camp sensibility is disengaged, depoliticized, or at least apolitical. In other words, content no longer matters. It's the emphasis on style that really matters. Not only is there a camp vision, said Susan Sontag, there's a camp way of looking at things. Camp is as well a quality discoverable in objects and the behavior of persons. There are campy movies, clothes, furniture, popular songs, novels, people, buildings. This distinction is important. Camp I has the power to transform experience, but not everything can be seen as camp. It's not all in the eye of the beholder. And then she lists a bunch of things that she considers part of the canon of camp. Women's clothes of the 20s. Stag movies seen without lust. They'd be pornography, but seen without lust because you're seeing it with an ironical eye, obviously. Camp taste has an affinity for certain arts rather than others. Clothes, furniture, all the elements of visual decor, for instance, make up a large part of camp. And she says there's a sense in which it is correct to say it's too good to be camp or too important, not marginal enough. In other words, the idea of camp is to take unserious things and treat them as serious and to take serious things and treat them as unserious. It's to mock the idea that there are standards to be upheld. That's what camp is all about. She says pure camp is always naive. Camp, which knows itself to be camp, is usually less satisfying. If all this makes you want to tear your hair out, and it sounds just like the intellectualization of bizarre behavior, or it sounds as though it's a way of making palatable to yourself the fact that you're mocking fellow human beings who are simply trying to engage in art, that you're mocking the sincerity of other people's belief systems, which is, by the way, what happens at the Metropolitan Museum of Art show every year. Every year, there's somebody who, I remember a couple of years ago, they did a camp take on Catholicism, and they were taking all of these holy Catholic images, and then they were mocking them with camp because they were trading something serious and using it playfully. They say, in naive or pure camp, this is Sontag, the essential element is seriousness, a seriousness that fails. Of course, not all seriousness that fails can be redeemed as camp. Only that which has the proper mixture of the exaggerated, the fantastic, the passionate, and the naive. When something is just bad, it's often because it is too mediocre in its ambition. The artist hasn't, attempting to, hasn't attempted to do anything really outlandish. Camp is the attempt to do something extraordinary. And she, she goes, I mean, it's a very, very long essay in Partisan Review. There, there, I kid you not, 58 bullet points about camp. Her final one is the ultimate camp statement. It's good because it's awful. And then she says, of course, one can't always say that. Only under certain conditions, those which I've tried to sketch in these notes. Camp taste is a kind of love, a love for human nature. It relishes rather than judges the little triumphs and awkward intensities of character. Camp taste identifies with what, is it, what it is enjoying. People who share this sensibility are not laughing at the thing they label as camp. They're enjoying it. Camp is a tender feeling. 
Well, no, camp generally is not a tender feeling. Camp is generally you mocking something, but pretending that you're not mocking that thing. That's, that's really what camp very often is. And you see that in the upper brow tastes of the people who are, this is why, again, as we'll show you in a second, the costumes, the outfits that are deliberately ugly, deliberately stupid looking, deliberately ridiculous. And then if you say that, it's, well, you, you're not in on the joke. It's a camp is an inside joke, guys. The reason I think this is important is because I think that it does speak to the nature of a politics that we are that we are sharing right now, and we're seeing the backlash to it. I'm going to get to more on this in just a second because the fact is the cultural wars that we have today have deep roots going all the way back to the 1960s and people like Susan Sontag, as I say, Susan Sontag, you know, the, the, it's not a coincidence that Susan Sontag really despised a lot of things about America at the same time she was coming up with this ironical mocking notion. Get to more on that in a second. First, Mother's Day is coming up. There's absolutely not nothing most of us wouldn't do to make sure the special moms in our life are happy. Sherry's Berries has special Mother's Day berries designed just for mom. They're topped with chocolate chips, pink shimmer sugar, swizzles. You choose your delivery date to ensure mom gets your gift of Sherry's Berries exactly when you want her to. And your satisfaction is always guaranteed. I love the products at Sherry's Berries. Every time I bring home a box of Sherry's Berries for my wife, a, pro a kosher product from Sherry's Berries, they have some kosher stuff. My wife is so happy, so are my kids. I mean, it's just incredible stuff. Don't wait until the last minute on this deal. Visit berries.com today to order freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99 for the moms in your life. To make mom really happy, you can double the berries for just $10 more. Mother's Day is Sunday, May 12th. So visit berries.com. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on the microphone in the upper right corner. Enter my code BENSHOW. That's berries.com. Click the microphone, code BENSHOW. Go check it out right now. Sherry's Berries. It is just some of the best stuff in the world. It's incredible. Check it out right now. Berries.com. Click the microphone. Code Ben Show. Get that special Mother's Day deal right now. So as I say, Susan Sontag, who created the idea of camp three years later in Partisan Review, would write this. If America is the culmination of Western white civilization, as everyone from the left to right declares, then there must be something terribly wrong with Western white civilization. This is a painful truth. Few of us want to go that far. The truth is that Mozart, Pascal, Boolean algebra, Shakespeare, parliamentary government, Baroque churches, Newton, the emancipation of women, Kant, Marx, Balanchine, uh, Balanchine ballets, et al. don't redeem what this particular civilization has wrought upon the world. The white race is the cancer of human history. It is the white race and it alone, its ideologies and inventions, which eradicates autonomous civilizations wherever it spreads, which has upset the ecological balance of the planet and now threatens the existence of life itself. So Susan Sontag again, had a deep level of disdain for the American way of life. She had a deep level of disdain for capitalism, obviously. And she had a deep level of disdain for objective standards of culture. And that's what camp is really an, an ode to. Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp is really an ode to the idea that we should obliterate any distinction between good and bad art by pretending that bad art is so bad that it's good. And that good art, actually, if we take it to its logical extreme, is mockable and should be treated with irony. And people who are trying to aspire to objective standards of beauty are really just flattering themselves. By the way, I totally agree with Tom Wolfe's characterization of Susan Sontag as, quote, just another scribbler who spent her life signing up for protest meetings and lumbering to the podium encumbered by her prose style, which had a handicapped parking sticker valid at Partisan Review. <laughs> that seems about correct to me. Now, in a second, I'm going to show you why this matters. Okay, so here are some, we're going to go through some of the pictures. I'll describe them to you from the stupid Met Gala. So, the Met Gala, this, to me, the Met Gala is basically the cultural version 
of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The White House Correspondents' Dinner is a bunch of journalists who all agree with each other politically, getting together to laugh at people in the middle of the country who don't agree with them, but are too unsophisticated to be part of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It's nerd prom. It's this self-flattering display of insularity. And that's exactly what the Met Gala is. It's people dressed up like idiots. If you saw somebody dressed up like this walking down the street, you'd probably seek to have them for- incarcerated. <laughs> you'd probably seek to have them at least they'd be put on a 5150 hold, right? I mean, you'd actually want to check into their mental stability. But now they show up and they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for these particular outfits. And then we are told that this is the height of culture. These, these are people who understand culture. That's what these are, people who understand culture. The, straight from the streets of Pan Am. Pretty incredible. So Katy Perry, for example, dressed up, apparently doing some cosplay of Lumiere from, from Beauty and the Beast. So that's pretty exciting stuff. She is dressed with a chandelier around her head and then a chandelier around her waist. Later, apparently, she would dress up as a hamburger as well. This is all camp, right? Now, again, what is this supposed to do? Well, it's supposed to play with you, right? It's supposed to gaslight you. So you look at this and you think, what is wrong with this person? This looks ridiculous. And then, well, you're not in on the joke, guys. If you are truly culturally aware, you would understand that this is camp. This is high style. And it's mocking it. Why can't you just play with us? Why can't you just be part of our ironical our ironical approach to fashion. Why can't you just do all this stuff? Well, because I think that your ironical approach does not merely extend to fashion. I think that it extends to politics as well. I think that there is a cultural gap that that basically suggests you're in the in crowd or you're in the out crowd. I think that cynicism about art, cynicism about objective standards of beauty, cynicism about all of this stuff leads to a great gap because there are universals in human culture. And yet we are attempting to break down these universals And it's irritating to people who believe in the universals, meaning most people look at this crap and they say it's crap, but they are told, no, 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 you just don't know, you're unsophisticated. You're a boor if you don't understand why Cardi B is dressed up as a blood vessel. You don't understand. By the way, Cardi B basically is dressed up as a blood vessel. Um, She she apparently is wearing some sort of weird, what is she, like a capillary system? She's dressed up in in a giant feathered red cape, apparently, I'd heard a rumor that there were bodies that she had drugged under there and she'll rob them later. But we don't know. She's a sophisticate, though, Cardi B. We know she's a sophisticate because of her music, which is incredibly sophisticated. And if you don't understand the sophistication and you prefer to listen to, you know, actual sophisticated music, that's because you don't understand the nature of ironical camp. And then you've got Lady Gaga, who went through a series. Uh, She basically went through an entire career change over the course of the Met Gala. She started off dressed as... I don't even know, a person who, who was attacked by a jellyfish. She started off uh, dressed in this giant pink fabric thing with a bunch of men holding umbrellas around her. And after, she, I guess she was the Duchess of Crazyland. And then after, it turns out, she lost her job as the Duchess of Crazyland, she was reduced to being a nanny. So here she is as Mary Poppins, I guess, wearing, she's holding her umbrella up high as she wears a black dress. I mean, things have gone really, really wrong for her ever since she didn't get Bradley Cooper, I guess. Uh, and then she downgraded even from the, she lost her job as a nanny and she was forced to be a stripper, which is too bad. So, but this, this is all obviously high style, guys. And if you don't get the joke, that's just because you have no sense of humor. Don't you understand? If, if you see this stuff and you're like, why are all these rich people spending lots of money while being socialists on random crap and we're supposed to cheer for them? Why? then that's because you don't understand camp or irony, guys. Elena Dunham dressed up in a a, a dress wearing rubber gloves, and it says on the front of her dress, rubberist, with a picture of the rubber gloves. 
I will admit, I was too innocent for this. I did not know what rubberism is or what a rubberist is. Apparently, it's somebody who has a rubber fetish. Good news. The rubber fetish is now over now that Lena Dunham is dressed in this. There will be no more humans with rubber fetishes after this particular outfit. Uh, and then Billy Porter showed up as well. So Billy Porter's whole shtick is to show up, apparently, at large-scale events dressed in outlandish things. This one, he, he I guess, dressed as effectively the guy from 300, like the villain from 300. He's carried in by a bunch of black guys with no shirts who presumably are supposed to be imitating slaves. I'm glad that he's allowed to get away with this. Uh, and, uh, and this is apparently the height of camp. What a, what a fabulous icon Billy Porter is for, for doing this sort of stuff. And then, of course, you have, uh, there he is, Billy Porter dressed in, I can't, as Birdman? Uh, <laughs> as something from the, the Rio de Janeiro revelry? I, I'm, I'm confused. And then finally, you get to Jared Leto, who at least, at least I found this somewhat hilarious. This, this at least is funny. So Jared Leto is dressed in apparently some sort of like 18th century Russian emperor costume carrying a double of his own head. So he's carrying around his own head in his hand. But guys, if, if you think all of this is weird and off-putting, if you think maybe we've become too prosperous a society as a result of the fact that we are all looking at these people and laughing at them and with them, then it's, it's only because you, you're not in on the joke. You wonder why the Trump revolution happened? Now, I, I know it's overused. This is why you got Trump, but this is the sort of stuff why you got Trump. Because your cultural betters will tell you they know more about morality. They know more about decency. They know more about how to raise children. They know more about how your money should be spent than you do. All of these people are wandering around holding replicas of their own heads at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. All of them are walking around dressed as, as Persian princes being carried by Nubian slaves or something. At the, I mean, it, how do you get away with that? At the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Our cultural betters, the people who ought to tell us what to do politically, who want to control our government top down, those people who want to centralize power and tell us what to do are dressed as chandeliers. And if you don't understand the joke, it's because you're, non, you're, you're a non-sophisticate. You're a rube. You're a deplorable. You're a person who lives in the middle of the country and you're a bitter clinger, clinging to those old values of, you know, things like objective beauty. You know, artistic values, there, a lot of the ancients talked about the ideas of objective values in art. I think there is a lot of truth to the idea that Beethoven is objectively better than Cardi B. Objectively better. But when you break down all boundaries and then you suggest that the only boundaries are the ones that you get to establish top down, you've created a system for chaos and effectively in the arts, a system of, of, of decimation of quality overall. And then you've cast out anybody who believes anything differently. So I thought that it was worthwhile exploring notes on camp since we're all supposed to just swallow the idea that camp is in and of itself something wonderful and that Susan Sontag is a wonderful addition to the American philosophical tradition and all of this stuff. By the way, she's an awful writer. I know there are a lot of people who disagree. A lot of people like her writing. You're allowed. You're wrong. In any case, we'll get to, <laughs> we'll get to some more cultural issues of high irritation to me today. But first, now it's time to move on to my all-time favorite underdog success story in the market. I'm talking about movement watches, of course. Founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank, they've sold almost 2 million watches worldwide by bringing quality designs at fair prices. Now, I love movement watches. I own two of them myself. I've bought them for most of the members of my family. You guys know I'm all about supporting ground-up entrepreneurs who work hard for, for what they want. That's why I love movement. They are a true success story. It makes wearing their products more meaningful. They came up and made a name for themselves in one of the most established markets in the world. They reached exponential growth. 
That's amazing for a young team. Movement watches are all about looking good by keeping it simple. They're not going to tell you how many steps you've taken. They're not going to blow your wrist up with text messages. They tell time, like a classic timepiece should, and they look good doing it. Movement watches start at just 95 bucks. You're looking at 400 bucks for the same quality from a traditional brand. You've got clean design, minimal, and really quality products. Movement has sold almost 2 million watches in over 160 countries. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com Shapiro. MVMT is launching new styles on their site all the time. Check out their latest at mvmt.com. Go to mvmt.com Shapiro for special deals. Join the movement, mvmt.com Shapiro. Okay, speaking of, of cultural issues where our cultural betters have no idea what the hell they're talking about, Melinda Gates, the wife of Bill Gates, tweeted out a piece from the New York Times Sunday opinion section called What Good Dads Get Away With. Division of labor in the home is one of the most important equity issues of our time. Yet at this rate, it will be another 75 years before men do half the work. Okay, so that's what Melinda Gates is tweeting out. Now, Melinda Gates seems like a nice person. I mean, she spends a lot of time on charity. She says it's time. Uh, she tweeted out this article with the caption, it's high change. We ch- high time we change this. Hashtag equality can't wait. Okay, well, how about this? When you're responsible for creating half of Microsoft, Bill Gates will do half the housework. How about that? Like the, the reason that I'm uptight about all of this is not because I shirk the housework. I probably do at least 50% of the housework in my home. As I've said many times, my wife is a doctor, which means that her work schedule is actually more demanding than mine. And when I was living at home as a, as a kid, my dad did a lot more housework than my mom. So this does not come from a desire to say that only women should do housework or something stupid like that. But the idea that men and women have to do exactly the same shares of exactly the same things, and that is what equality is, is so stupid, it actually undermines the efficacy of relationships. If you want to have a good relationship with your spouse, you want to have a good relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, the way to do that is to assume that all duty is upon you. Having expectations of your partner is actually a big mistake. You should marry somebody who you know will do this stuff. Just like when, when you hire an employee, okay? Spouse is not an employee, but the same standard actually obtains here. When I hire an employee, I hire the employee with the understanding that that employee knows more about their topic of expertise than I do. That's why I'm hiring them. If I could do it myself, I wouldn't. Also, I hire them with the expectation that they are going to do their job and that I can trust them to do their job. If I have to sit over them, yelling at them and haranguing them, then that's going to be a problem. Well, in marriage, you should marry somebody who you believe is going to take responsibility and help you out. It shouldn't be, well, my, you know, I'm going to force this person to change now and do half the housework. Bad mistake. And the same thing is true of you. You should assume that if something needs to get done, it's on you to do it. And then if you want to change that, you have a discussion with your spouse. But according to this study, women are deeply put upon because they tend to do more of the housework. You know what else women tend to do more? Take time off from work. Stay home after they have kids. Be home more. Care more about that sort of stuff. By polling data, all of this is true. And yet we have this entire article from the New York Times now endorsed by Melissa Gates. The, the, the article is by Doc, uh, Darcy Lockman. Uh, it is Dr. Lockman is the author of the forthcoming All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. And the piece says, quote, when my husband and I became parents a decade ago, we were not prepared for the ways in which sexism was about to express itself in our relationship. Like me, he was enthralled by our daughters. Like him, I worked outside the home. And yet I was the one who found myself in charge of managing the details of our children's lives. Too often I'd spend frantic days looking for spring break childcare only to hear him ask, oh, there's no school tomorrow? Or we'd arrive home late with two tired kids. And instead of spearheading their nighttime routine, he'd disappear to brush his own teeth. Unless I pointed out these lapses, which he'll tell you I often did, and I'll tell you I often did not. 
he was unaware. We've all heard this story before. Thinking about my own relationship and watching other couples I knew, I kept wondering, why is this still happening? Well, maybe because very often women care more about a lot of these details in children's lives than men do. And there is a biological component to such behavior. But I guess we're supposed to believe that this is all about evil men. You're right, in the most woke, enlightened, feminist period in American history, it's just that men assume that women are gonna fill all the gaps when it comes to childbearing and child rearing. Well, then maybe, maybe it's your fault. Maybe you married a guy who, who, who should have swept up after you. Maybe this is a you problem, lady. Maybe there are a lot of women who are perfectly happy being in relationships with husbands, raising kids, where we understand that we are not all doing the same amount of work on every different front. Okay, my wife, as I say, is working longer hours than I am. She also does more child planning, like daily activity planning, when it comes to my kids. I tend to do more of the bedtime routine and more of the wake-up routine. In a partnership with your spouse, you are doing what you can to help out the other spouse. And if your husband's not doing that, again, you're the one who picked him, lady. She says, the optimistic tale of the modern involved dad has been greatly exaggerated. The amount of childcare men performed rose throughout the 1980s and 90s, but then began to level off without ever reaching parity. Mothers still shoulder 65% of childcare work. Okay, and fathers still work a disproportionate number of hours. In academic journals, family researchers caution the culture of fatherhood has changed more than father's actual behavior. Sociologists attribute the discrepancy between mother's expectations and reality to a largely successful male resistance. This resistance is not being led by socially conservative men whose like-minded wives often explicitly agree to take the lead in the home. Right, it turns out that when you agree with your spouse, you have a happier marriage. So hilariously enough, conservatives tend to be okay with, you know, the decisions they make in getting married. It is only leftists who apparently are upset about this. Or liberals, she says, it is happening instead with relatively progressive couples, and it takes many women who thought their partners had made a prenatal commitment to equal parenting by surprise. Why are their partners failing to pitch in more? The answer lies in part in the different ways that men and women typically experience unfairness. Inequality makes everyone feel bad. Studies have found that people who feel they're getting away with something experience fear and self-reproach, while people who feel exploited are angry and resentful. And yet men are more comfortable than women with the first scenario and less tolerant than women of finding themselves with the short end of the stick. Parity is hard, and this discrepancy lays the groundwork for male resistance. Okay, there is something delicious about the idea that the people who are most victimized here are liberal women who married the nice feminist men who paid all of the lip service to everything that was going to be identical and then just didn't show up for work. There's something slightly ironic about that if we we're going to engage in irony. But the idea that men and women are supposed to be doing exactly the same share of everything is really, really dumb. Okay, I'm going to take the lion's share when it, comes to, when it comes to rough play with my children. This is true for all fathers. The disproportionate share of that goes to me. When it comes to throwing my kids around and tossing them on the couch and tickling them and playing sports with them and taking them swimming and taking them biking, okay, that sort of stuff is going to fall to me. When it comes time for somebody to sit and do artwork with my daughter, that's probably gonna fall on mommy. Men and women are different, and that's okay. In fact, it's quite good. It's one of the reasons you need a mom and a dad. They are not supposed to be identical. One of the beautiful things about conservatism is it recognizes the truth of human nature. The truth of human nature also recognizes that we are not widgets. We are not identical widgets, interchangeable at will. That's not the way this works. So is it a huge problem that women are disproportionately doing housework? It's only a problem if it's a problem for you in your relationship. But otherwise, is it a generalized societal problem? No, I'm sorry, it's not. You involved yourself in a voluntary arrangement. If you don't like how that worked out, that is a you choice, not a me choice. It's not a me problem, frankly. Work out your marital problems yourself. 
Stop whining about how it's, it's generalized sexism that has men not doing the brushing of the teeth at night. So uh, this, sort of, this sort of solipsism that says, well, it's, you know, I, my own marriage is a problem, therefore it's a problem for everyone. Maybe it's not. Maybe not. In a second, we'll move on to actual politics. We'll talk about Joe Biden, who is jumping in the polls, and we have some, some other cultural issues to discuss. But first, it can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Don't do it, ever. This would be a very stupid decision by you. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be. They cannot stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crunk, crushed hunk of metal. And what used to be you, well, you're a pile of meat. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop even if it sees you. The result can be disaster and death. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. Assume the signals are smarter than you are because they probably are. And you need to remember one thing. You need to stop because the trains can't. This warning sounds superfluous to lots of intelligent people. Okay, well, maybe it is and maybe it's not. I actually know about people who have tried to run stop signs, who have tried to run the signals when the train is coming down the tracks. It has ended quite poorly. Do not be one of these people. You need to stop when the signal is down. All right, so in a second, we're going to get to Another cultural issue where our cultural betters are going to inform us. This, of course, would be abortion. We'll get to that in just one second. First, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. When you do, you get the rest of this show live. You get the rest of the Andrew Clavin show live, the Matt Walsh show live. Two additional hours of me in the afternoons. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Michael Knowles' show. That exists as well. You get two additional hours of me every afternoon when you subscribe. You get to correspond with me in the mailbag. You also get our Sunday specials on Saturday. We just filmed a great Sunday special yesterday. We have all sorts of fantastic stuff when you become a subscriber, when you get the annual $99 a year, cheaper than the monthly. You get this, the leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler. Cast your eyes upon its magnificence. I mean, this could be yours. So what exactly are you waiting for? It makes julienne fries. It's incredible. Go check it out right now. And when you do, you get all of the aforementioned benefits. Also, please subscribe at YouTube or iTunes. If you enjoy the show, let everybody else know about it. We are not only the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast in the United States, we are the second ranked podcast in the United States over the last month. Help make us number one by subscribing and leaving us a review at iTunes and SoundCloud and YouTube and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. Again, we are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast in the nation. Again, the culture wars in the United States are one of the main reasons for the gap in the United States. A lot of people try to attribute the gap in American thinking to economics. You've seen this increasingly. The Trump revolution was really about dispossessed small towns that decided they had had enough of being jobbed by Mexico and China, and they just spoke up in favor of Trump, and they shifted from Obama to Trump. These are these, these towns that are, that are the, the opioid epidemic towns, the addiction centers, the suicide centers. They're going to Trump because of economic issues. I don't think that's true. I think that a lot of these places are going to Trump because they are sick of being looked down upon by their supposed cultural betters. I think that the deplorables pitch by Hillary Clinton was the worst thing she did during that campaign. Just as I think that the Mitt Romney 47% gaffe during the 2012 campaign was probably the worst thing that he did. He may have been accurate in terms of the percentages, but it felt like he was looking down at a bunch of people who felt left behind. Well, over the course of 2012 to 2016, Barack Obama made a very solid pitch, and so did many members of the mainstream media, along the lines of Susan Sontag, that America was not an inherently very good place, and that, in fact, the, there was a new demographic emerging majority that was going to come up and sweep through the land, and that we could forget about all of these deplorable 
blue-collar white voters living in small towns who were abandoned. They should be left to the past, and we should move on progressively into the future. I think that drove a lot of the Trump movement. I think it continues to drive a lot of the Trump movement, and I don't think that's wrong. I think there are a lot of people who are saying, listen, we're just as American as you are. And in fact, many of our ideals are closer to founding ideals and traditional morality than the proposals of people writing for the New York Times editorial board or members of the Obama administration. So y'all can just you know, stick it where the sun don't shine. And I think that holds particularly true when you see members of the left doing stuff like they are doing uh, on abortion. So the entire left has now endorsed, the hard left has endorsed abortion till point of birth, which is a grave moral evil. And then they have informed everybody that if you oppose them, it's because you dislike women and because you are actually morally inferior, which is an amazing statement. One of the people doing this is a guy named Pennsylvania State Representative Brian Sims. So over the last couple of days, he is engaged in some pretty ridiculous behavior. This, is, this was released by live action, but it was Sims himself who taped it. This guy's a Democrat, obviously. He, went, he found an elderly anti-abortion protester and started harassing her. Hi, everyone. Uh, Representative Brian Sims here. And I'm once again out in front of Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Today's protester. Now, she is an old white lady who's going to try to avoid showing you her face. Um, but the same laws, and luckily, that protect her from being out here also protect me from showing you who she is. You can pray at home for children. It's probably the same place that you could feed a child, but you're not. Instead, you're out here shaming people for something that they have a constitutional right to do. Who would have thought that an old white lady would be out in front of a Planned Parenthood telling people what's right for their bodies? Shame on you. Shame on you for hiding your face at the same time that you're shaming other people. Okay, well, the reason she's hiding her face is because she doesn't want to get doxxed by people like this Pennsylvania state representative who's harassing an elderly anti-abortion protester who's literally just standing there and telling people that maybe they want to think about what it is they're doing. And then this guy went even further. He offered money for the identities of teenagers who are protesting against abortion. And I'm, the, the media was fine with slandering the Covington Catholic students for standing there and doing nothing. Have you heard any national coverage of this Pennsylvania elected state representative Democrat who's now offering money for the identities of teenagers so that they can be doxxed teenagers? A bunch of pseudo-Christian protesters who've been out here shaming young girls for being here. Hi. And so here's the deal. I've got $100 to anybody who will identify any of these three. So we're actually going to Planned Parenthood. I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood. So look, a bunch of more. white people standing out in front of a Planned Parenthood shaming I'm people. Really There's sorry. nothing Christian about what you're doing. I'm nothing Christian at all about what you're doing. Hi, nothing Christian or loving or godly about what you're doing. So I've got $100 to anybody who will identify this. $100. See if you got some friends out here. $100. Bucks. It'd be easier if you just give me your name and your address. What makes you think that it's your job to tell women what's right for their bodies? And the truth is, I'm not really asking because I don't care. Shame on you. Okay, so this guy is standing outside an abortion clinic harassing people who are attempting to inform people about the decision they're about to make. And then he's offering money to dox teenagers. These are our moral betters. Well, what a, what a nice, has any Democrat, by the way, been asked about this? Imagine if a Republican representative were to do the same thing at, for example, a pro-choice rally. Let's say there was a pro-choice rally at a church and the pro-choice, the pro-choicers were standing outside holding signs. How do you think it would go if a pro-life person walked up to that group, a pro-life elected representative, and started doxing the kids in that group? You think that would go great? But again, these are, these are the people whose morality we should certainly concede to. These are people who sneer at the Bible. People who suggest that if you are anti-abortion and religious, that that is because you are secretly a bigot and your religion is simply bigotry. 
This culture gap matters, folks. And everybody who's underestimating the culture gap and trying to reduce it down to economic concerns is totally missing the boat. Missing the boat in a huge way politically and exacerbating divides in the country. I'd venture to say that, that culture divide issues ranging from the kind of scorn of celebrities in Hollywood to people harassing anti-abortion protesters outside clinics, that that has as much to do with voting patterns as economics does in the United States, which is one of the reasons why I think that the best candidate for the Democrats would be somebody who doesn't do all of this stuff, who isn't part of the woke scold left, who isn't involved in this ironic breaking down of all standards, who doesn't consider themselves part of the morally insular echo chamber. Anybody who does that has a shot at winning a general election. Anybody who doesn't is going to have a real tough time against President Trump. And this brings us to the latest polls. So I think the polls are showing this. Joe Biden is dominating the latest polls. He's dominant among Democrats. He's dominating them. Joe Biden has now 46% of the vote in the national Democratic primary poll, according to Harris X and The Hill. He is followed by Bernie Sanders, who has fallen all the way down to 14%, and then Pete Buttigieg at 8%, Elizabeth Warren at 7%, Harris at 6%, and everybody else at 3% or below. Biden is a dominating frontrunner. One of the reasons that Biden is a dominating frontrunner is because if you watched Joe Biden's launch ad, if you watched his launch ad, which I said I thought was in many ways quite good, one of the things that you noticed is that this was somebody who was not trying to cast Americans as bad if they disagreed with him on politics. He was trying to suggest there's a moral conflict in the country, and then he was mischaracterizing President Trump in order to do so. But in terms of what he was promoting, he was saying America has been based on these true good and eternal principles and that we all share those principles. That's a conservative message. And that's what Americans want to hear. It's why he's continuing to do well. There's a new morning console poll. Again, shows Biden at 40% and Bernie Sanders at 19, everybody else below 10. And that's a pretty incredible lead for Joe Biden. The reason he is largely seen as the most electable Democrat is because he is not engaged, at least publicly right now, in this sort of ironically detached, scorning and looking down his nose at the vast majority of Americans in the middle. It was the reason, by the way, that I was first kind to Pete Buttigieg's candidacy. Because when he first started, one of the first comments that he made was that as a gay man, he needed a Chick-fil-A because they have good chicken. And I thought, oh, well, a, a rational human being who's not trying to demonize his fellow Americans. Now, since then, Pete Buttigieg has decided he needs to swivel to the radical left. And so he has started to attack Mike Pence as a bigot and suggest that religious Americans who believe in traditional marriage are bigots. I thought it's a bad political move. I also think it's a bad moral move. But the appeal of, of Buttigieg originally was the same as Biden's appeal, which was, again, not trying this ironic detachment from the sincere lives of millions of Americans. So the, if Democrats actually want to win, they're going to have to get over this, this belief that their moral superiority makes them capable of sneering at everyone else. And that was the feeling about Hillary Clinton among Republicans, by the way, is that Hillary Clinton spent her entire career sneering at people who were not like Hillary Clinton. And that goes all the way back to the 1990s when she was suggesting that stay-at-home moms were, were stand-by-your-man women like Tammy Wynette. And Hillary had a long history of that. It's one of the reasons Biden is more popular than Hillary, because he hasn't really said stuff like that. Hillary used to say that sort of stuff routinely. The more you're in the bubble, the more you're the kind of person who looks down at the sincere, authentic belief systems of other Americans, belief systems that have deep roots in American life, and says to those people, you know, I'm just going to mock you. Because really what you are is a, is a trailer trash person who likes pink flamingos. So I'm going to wear this pink flamingo to this weird Met Gala in order so that I can make fun of you. I'm doing it because I'm sophisticated and ironic. You're doing it because you're a dope. 
That sort of culture gap matters. Joe Biden hasn't engaged in it yet, and that's one of the reasons that Joe Biden is a dangerous candidate. Now, the problem is, of course, that Joe Biden comes along with policy. So Joe Biden said yesterday his first mission, like his very first thing as president of the United States, would be to repeal the tax cuts. Well, good luck with that. It turns out the tax cuts have helped some 80 percent of Americans. I speak again as someone who is not invested personally in the tax cuts. I paid more taxes thanks to the tax cuts because state tax, the state taxes are no longer deductible on federal income tax. But when Joe Biden says he wants to repeal tax cuts, bold move, Joe. Let's see how it plays out for you. People say, well, Joe, how are you going to do all this? Well, guess what? First thing I do is going to repeal this Trump tax cut. Oh, not a joke. Yay, tax us more. Woo. So that's, that's good stuff right there. By the way, Joe Biden is now undergoing another, another problem. Jill Biden, his wife, who seems like a nice person, she just told NPR this morning that it's time to move beyond the Anita, the Anita Hill question. So Joe Biden, who used to be enough of an honest broker, I guess, that he recognized that Anita Hill was lying in parts of her testimony. Now he's going to get excoriated for it by the same radical left that sneers at everybody else. So Joe Biden is, is saying that sort of stuff. As I've said, I think that the best day for Joe Biden, these are, these are the salad days for Joe Biden. I am not sure that it is not downhill for Joe Biden. I'm not sure that the left will tolerate any candidate who doesn't channel their feeling of deep rage at this group of people in the middle of the country who refuse to go along with the progressive movement toward a brighter future that involves ironically looking down at half of Americans. And Joe Biden called Anita Hill, as we know, but she said she didn't consider that call an apology. And now Joe Biden says, well, you know, we need to get beyond that. She said, quote, I watched the hearings like most other Americans. And I mean, Joe said, as did I, I believed Anita Hill. He voted against Clarence Thomas. He apologized for the way the hearings were run. Now it's kind of time to move on. And then she says, well, he wanted to call her not because he was running for president, but out of sincerity. The, the left is going to just tear him limb from limb. Now, maybe he survives. Maybe there are enough rational Democrats left in the party that Joe Biden is the nominee. Maybe not. Maybe not. Because it seems, it seems like not. It seems like the, the amount of, of rage and angst in the Democratic Party is too high, maybe for Joe Biden to be able to carry this sort of support all the way through the primaries. Kamala Harris still trying to channel that rage and anger. She came out yesterday and she said, Trump isn't trying to make America great. Trump is trying to make America hate. She said this at the NAACP. This guy in the White House said neo-Nazis were fine people when they marched on Charlottesville. He's attacked communities of color and leaders of color by name. He's denigrated entire countries on the continent of Africa with foul language no president should speak. Let's speak truth here and today. This president isn't trying to make America great. He's trying to make America hate. Okay, this is the same woman who suggests that Stacey Abrams is the legitimate governor of Georgia, that, that Andrew Gillum is the legitimate governor of Florida, and that voter suppression has been breaking out across America against black people. I mean, th this is a very divisive personality. I, I wonder if that divisiveness is going to continue to take over the Democratic Party. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things that I like today. I'm going to make the very controversial and bold statement. I thought the last episode of Game of Thrones was really good. I know. So if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, if you're not a Game of Thrones fan, then prepare yourself for three minutes of me talking about Game of Thrones. There will be spoilers included. So Game of Thrones is 
the, the last episode, the Battle of Winterfell, not, in fa- not a huge fan. I understand why people liked it, but it was basically World War Z shot through a potato. Ooh, zombie battle, terrible battle tactics. Everyone lived except for like two people who we knew were going to die anyway. This last episode was a return to what made Game of Thrones interesting in the first place, which was all the interpersonal play. And it was all of the characters being true to themselves. So Danny is smart and ambitious, but her ambition is her greatest problem because she desperately wants to be queen. And as Varys, my hero in the show, the only libertarian in the show, says the only person who should be king or queen is the person who doesn't want to be king or queen, which is a very Cincinnatus, George Washington type thing to say. I've said it myself about the presidency. So Jon Snow is that character. Jon Snow, however, happens to have the stark streak of doltishness in him. So Jon wants Danny to be the queen, but Jon also does not take her advice about keeping his face shut until he decides to tell his sisters that he is in fact the true heir to the Targaryen throne, which turns out is a bad move. Ned Stark kept the secret for some 30 years. Sansa Stark kept it for 32 seconds before she proceeded to tell Tyrion and initiate what will be the final, the final problem of people trying to kill Danny, Danny going crazy, burning people alive, John having to kill her. That's the way that I think that this probably goes, unfortunately. Um, but that's, that's the direction. But all of, that, it, all of that makes some sense. The killing of Danny's other dragon, I know people had a problem with it. Oh, why, why couldn't she see the ships coming? Why didn't she know that they were going to, to shoot have newfangled versions of these giant bolts. Why, why didn't she know any of that? Okay, fine. If you can't suspend your disbelief for that, fine. But the dragon had to go. And the fact that the dragon went down, obviously, is driving Danny toward the feeling that she is alone in the world. And so she's back where she began on the show, alone in the world, except this time she has a dragon and an army. So that is where the show is going. I like all of that stuff. Um, obviously, there are very awkward moments, like Jamie and Brienne. Um, what? It is, a, it is a bug of boo of mine that... For some reason, Hollywood writers think that all male-female friendships have to end in sex. It's weird. Why can't Brienne and Jamie just be friends? And he, uh, he understands that she is an honorable woman, and she looks more honorable than, than Cersei does. Why, why does he have to sleep with her? It's just all, it's, it's very strange and a weird turn of character from Jamie. Um, but overall, I really like this show a lot better. One final critique of the show, there's no way that Cersei doesn't kill Tyrion at the end of that, that episode, right? I mean, Tyrion is standing right below the walls. She's just deployed Bronn to kill him. She's got him directly in range of her archers. And instead of killing him, she lets him go to kill Missandei. Why? So he can live and then go advise Daenerys? It doesn't make any sense. It would have been an amazing moment, by the way, if they actually had the stones to kill Tyrion right there. Because he's had his, his kind of final flaw is that he still thinks that his family is loyal. That would have been the greatest. I mean, it really would have been original game one season of Thrones kind of stuff. But... Overall, much better. We're back to the character study. We're back to the part of the story that matters. So all of that is good. Haters, don't at me. Okay, other things that I like today. So, um, you know, let's make this a thing that I hate, actually. So Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, there there are a couple things that I hate with regard to AOC. I don't hate her. She seems like a delightful human who doesn't know things and says dumb crap all the time. But apparently... There is, there, there is a parody account of AOC that has now been banned from Twitter, even though it was clearly linked as a parody account. It, it clearly indicated itself as parody in the Twitter name. Tw- Twitter name. It had 85,000 followers. Twitter shut it down for unclear reasons. The Politico who created and manned the account, according to Daily Wire, Mike Morrison, also had his personal account permanently banned. According to screenshots provided by Morrison, Twitter acknowledges that clearly marked parody accounts are allowed, but Morrison's content posted to the AOC parody account was apparently too similar to comments actually made by the socialist. So in other words, 
him, she was impossible to parody is basically the critique. The critique is that she says such dumb stuff that any attempt to parody her sounds too much like her. So that, that, that's pretty amazing. And it's a pretty great indicator of how awful she is at her job. In other news, AOC has discovered garbage disposals. So that's exciting. So she, uh, she put out a video yesterday talking about garbage disposals with the caption, this DC apartment is bougie and has things I've never seen before. Like what is a garbage disposal really for? Is it better or worse than throwing something in the garbage? More importantly, why is it so loud and yelling at me? Okay, a couple of things. One, apparently garbage disposals have been illegal in New York City since 1997. Um, what the hell is wrong with your city? Uh, question, I'm from Los Angeles. Everybody's got a garbage disposal. Why are they illegal? Why is your city ridiculous? Why would you outlaw garbage disposals? Also, what are garbage disposals for, aside from awkward scenes in Final Destination? Well, they're obviously for disposing of the garbage that accrues in your sink when you wash a dish. That's what a garbage just, like, it's not rocket science. The good news, I guess, we can play the video for a second. I am told this is a garbage disposal. I've never seen a garbage disposal. I never had one in any place I've ever lived. It is terrifying. I don't know what to use it for or what its purpose is. Like food scraps? Like is this environmentally sound? I don't know. Okay, so she, she, she doesn't know. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm just glad she's discovered a great place to store her policy proposals. That's what I really care about. So, so good on AOC for finally finding a place she can put her policy proposals directly in the garbage disposal and save us all plenty of time. Alrighty. Well, we will be back here a little bit later today with two additional hours, or we will see you here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright, Daily Wire 2019. Hey guys, over on the show today, a Democratic state representative in, in uh, Pennsylvania. Maybe you've seen this guy, this video of him harassing and intimidating and doxing uh, pro-life protesters outside of a Planned Parenthood in Philadelphia. Well, um, we're going to respond to that. And hundreds of us are going to show up to that Planned Parenthood clinic to maybe teach this guy a lesson about bullying. I'll have info on that event. It's uh, pretty exciting stuff. So tune in for that. Also, Cory Booker is calling for gun confiscation. But I thought that uh, Democrats always say that, no, they're not going to take our guns. Well, apparently they are. Uh, so we'll talk about that as well today over on The Matt Walsh Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, 
I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.